continue in Ephesians 1. Uh, what I do want to say, however, is we're going to be getting into some areas of, as we approach chapter 2, in the light of what we're reading here at the end of chapter 1, uh, I'm going to cover some verses that uh, a lot of people, just like kind of we did last time, uh, a lot of people like to put off, push off into the future. What we're trying to see is how Paul, and he does this quite often in these in these chapters, and it's hard to, for, you know, most commentaries and stuff will go through this, and they never reference an Old Testament uh, reference. But mm-hmm. chapter 2, chapter, I mean, there's so much Old Testament uh verses that he's bringing in that it's very we're going to have to take our time to look at those because um, what we're seeing is Paul beginning to show how the things that are testified of the realities, the promises, the prophecies even with regard to um, Israel's um, restoration you can say uh, have been realized right here in what he's describing in Ephesians of a salvation wherein God has summed up all things, as he said in the first part of the chapter, all things in one head, under the headship of one man, things in heaven and in earth. And again, it's very significant that we you know, point out these these places because to me, to understand how our salvation is the culminating reality of all of these promises just brings in so much weight to it and to it keeps it keeps even the natural mind of men saying hey what's next what's on god's agenda now you know and there's so many things out there today that will tell you what's on god god's agenda and what god's agenda is is his son god's agenda has been christ before he did anything as he testified of what he would do and when he has done all things as he has now christ is the culmination of it he's the end he's the beginning and the end he's the origin and the culmination of it and that's the simplicity of this but also in that it is so simple there's a there's a profound weight to it to realize that everything that we have received we have received in the presence of one perfect, comprehensive life. And no wonder in the light of that, Paul would say, here's what you need. You need the eyes of your understanding in light. You need God to open your eyes to see this. And that's the, that's the prayer we have to approach these things with. That's the understanding First, of a salvation perfectly complete, summed up in Christ, and then the necessity of seeing the one who has wrought such a work, who has provided such a completeness to the soul. That's, 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 all, our, that's all the pursuit we need. We don't, you know, we don't need to get caught up in all of these side roads and man's you know, pointing you to this thing and this move of God that's coming one day this thing that's about to happen, God's going to raise up this and God's going to do that. God has done 
what God has always desired to do. That is called salvation. That is called Christ in you. And we're going to see that tonight in some verses again that that most people still do not see as a testimony and a prophecy of this very thing we're reading in in these verses that I'm about to read to you. And this will start in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, in fact, you know, we went into 1 Corinthians 15 last time. It's it's a, it's another picture of that, basically. Um, so let's just read from verse 19, chapter 1. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. Again, we talked about that phrase, meaning in the Jewish use of that phrase, which is why Paul uses it, in the use of it, it was the age that is present was the age before the Messiah's come and the age to come was the age that would be ushered in in his coming and hath put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all now we're going to keep going and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works now in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this would correspond to this... uh, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places in in verse 20 of chapter 1. Now we see in chapter 2, we have been raised and made to sit together in heavenly places in him. This is a real significant picture. Uh, And I read that part of chapter 2, and there's so much in chapter 2. Again, I will have to look at, but there is a, a picture in the Old Testament, again, that, that looks to this salvation and shows the, the working of his power, the working of this power of resurrection as a work of grace, as a work of mercy. And we're going to see it. And I want you, I'm just kind of priming the pump so that we can be ready when we see these verses because this is not where most people go when okay. they when they see this when they read these verses. But before we get to that, 
I want to look at this in the light of, because we're talking about God exalting this one, raising this one, uh, giving him a name above all names, and basically bringing us under his headship, his lordship, you could say his dominion and his sovereignty. And we saw this even in 1 Corinthians 15 in our last class, that that's, that's the whole work of God is to bring us from the headship of one man to the headship of another. And in Romans 5, that's what we're seeing. So I want to turn to Romans 5, verse 19 for a second. And then we're going to read all the way through the fourth, maybe a little more, but the at least the fourth verse of chapter 6 of Romans. There'll be a lot of reading tonight. Um, so in verse, let me, there's a couple of verses I need here in front of me. Uh, so verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign. Yeah, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here he goes on. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now I want to show you the significance of, of, of being his body under his headship, now brought under his rule. We read these this question at the beginning of chapter 6, and we missed the point. The point Paul is making, the reason he's asking this question is not so he can answer questions that's been coming to him by people who would say, hey, are you saying that we need to just keep sinning so that God will give us grace? That's not the point here. Paul's not trying to answer that misconception. Paul is making a point with this question. He's just said that now, instead of being under the dominion and reign of sin, we, are been, we have been brought under the dominion and rule and reign of grace, of Christ. That's a total change of kingdom and union and, and, and being. That's an entire change. And so what he's saying here in this question, so what do we say to this? Should we continue, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What he's trying to show them is there's an impossibility here. You cannot remain in sin and have the abounding of grace. It is not possible. Why? Because you can't be found as a subject of two kingdoms. What God has done is brought you out of one completely and brought you into one completely. You cannot, you know, have one foot in one and one foot in the other. That's not how this works. God does not bring his grace upon sinners. Grace is he brings you out of sin into the righteousness of another man. 
He makes your soul a partaker of the sovereign power and rule of one man, and that means out of another's power. In fact, that's what he says in the latter part of chapter 6. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were what? Free from righteousness. But now that you are slaves to righteousness, you are free from sin. That's the answer here. He's not saying, oh, we better not sin. You know, that way we get more grace. We don't sin more so we get grace. We just need to not sin so we'll get... No, the question is, how in the world can we say we can live in two kingdoms? You cannot exist in two kingdoms. God has not allowed you to remain in one, and the process is getting you little by little, process by process, out of the one into the other. The question is asked because he's trying to show you there's an impossibility. You can't cross back over this sea. This sea is shut forever. And that's the point. God forbid, how shall we that are what? Dead to sin live any longer therein. You can't live in that you're in, in that, that you're dead to. What does that mean? That means this is not about me. I've come into something that I didn't do. I've come into something already taken care of when I enter into it. So how did I get there? Know ye not? So many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. What's his death? His death is the death to sin that had dominion over us. His death was to bring a full end to to the sin and the corruption and the condemnation that reigned over the souls of those who were found in Adam. He has brought a clear judgment to that creation and brought us out from that into an altogether new creation where all things are of God and not of us. That's 2 Corinthians 5. For the old has passed away and the new has come. This is salvation in the reality of he is our head. He is the one who fills his body with his fullness. And you can't straddle the fence when that's the case. And we look at ourselves all day long and question where we are in that scenario. If Christ is in you, there's only one answer. You're dead to sin. And you're alive unto God. Why? Because the one who is dead in the sin, to sin and alive unto God is in you, and he's your life. And the moment he took residence in your soul, your soul became defined and determined by his presence and not yours. That's the power that we're talking about. That's the exercising of his dominion. And that's the case the moment the soul becomes his habitation. The soul comes to know, grow in the reality of it, but the reality of that soul is determined immediately when he takes residence in it. Because what comes into that soul is right here, the reigning of grace. We are dead to sin. We are alive unto God. Because he's there. And we were baptized into him, been baptized 
into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism in his death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead. This is, see, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what we've been reading. The power wrought of God when he raised him up from the dead. Therefore, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That life is not your life made better or new. That life is a life that has dominion over sin, dominion over death, and is unto God a sweet-smelling savor. That is the life that determines your soul's state of being. That's why he can say in these words, holy, that we as his body are holy and without blame before God in love. Amen. Because he determines that. That's the significance of this power wrought of God. It's a power that has overcome me and overcome you and 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 brought about a reality that could never be defined any other way for us. That's why it's the mercy of God that it can be said, this is toward us who believe. This is his love toward us. That while we were even sinners, while we were dead in sin, he has quickened us. He has come to a soul that was dead and had no hope at all of life. And then he calls out to that soul. As the resurrection, the one who has already beaten death, overcome its power, overcome the sin that holds that soul. And he says, come up hither. Come to me and live. That's the significance of being his body. That's the significance of a one man, a perfect man. That's not me. That's not me and you corporately. I love that word. We throw that word up so much. You know, we are the corporate body of Christ. And all that is is man's attempt to find a place for himself. We are the body of Christ because Christ lives in every part of it and fills every part of it with himself and defines in God's sight the validity and reality that that body has. Everything that body has, it has because he's the life of it. He's the, he's the substance of it all. I don't have one thing of my own here. And then in the light of that, wonderful, wonderful uh, truth, you can hear 1 Corinthians 15, right? We, we uh, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we should walk in newness of life. And then he says, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death, where is your victory? Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Grave, death, you've lost this war. There's a man who has come forth and he has defeated it. He has brought an end to it. 
and those who have heard his voice now live by him. He is our resurrection. He is our life. And we in him have put off corruption, put on incorruption, made free from the law of sin and death through the imputation of the law of the spirit of life. And we're going to see that in a picture. And I want us to understand it's our baptism. One baptism, Paul would say in Ephesians. There is one baptism. And that's the baptism into his death. And that's the baptism that causes our souls to partake of of the once and for all exercising of the mighty power of God in the functioning of one head in one body, giving that one body one life and one righteousness and one... You see, it's the one who is obedient. That's the one who says, in that one's obedience, many are made righteous. You know what that means? There's another man who determines the state of those who are found in him. Men never determined anything. One man determined everything. Even yeah. obedience. And we're continually trying to be obedient to try to prove something to God. There's only one man's obedience he looks to. Hallelujah. He never looked to me to be obedient. Because he knows that's a joke. He knows that's not even possible. On my best day, I'll say, hey, I was obedient today. Tomorrow it falls apart. <laughs> but salvation doesn't fall apart. Salvation doesn't have seams that burst and you know all this stuff. Salvation is complete and full and perfect and unshakable, unmoving. Because it's defined in the head. In one man. One perfect man. And so you have a place like First Peter that goes back and looks into uh, you know, Noah and the flood. And he brings all this together. Here's what he says in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust. Do you hear that? The just suffered for for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the longsuffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, he's showing that was a figure of something, Whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. What baptism? Water? Nope. The baptism we just read about. The baptism into his death. And Paul will make that, or Peter will make that very clear when he says this. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh by water. But this baptism is that which brings the answer of a good conscience toward God, brings the soul into alignment with God by the resurrection, hear that, of Jesus Christ. It's a soul being brought into his resurrection, living now by his life, who is uh, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. That sounds a lot like what we just read in 1 Corinthians raised and seated in heavenly places 
He's on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers made subject to him. Sounds like the same salvation we're reading about. What brings us to that? Baptism. Don't you know those of us baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death so that through that baptism we could be found in him, dead to sin and alive unto God, that we could live by him and him alone and therein walk in the newness of this type of life? Amen. When Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly, that doesn't mean riches and wealth. That means a life in abundance that they never, ever had before and could never have before. It's an unprecedented life that never existed until I came. That's the life I'm giving them. That's the life we have. And that life doesn't allow the soul to decide from day to day where it lives. That life does not give the soul options. Hey, you want to be a sinner today and a saint tomorrow? You want to mess up today and, you know, play all these games? No, that life is sovereign. That life has been given dominion. That's why it says he's been given to be the head of the church. All the games we play, we play that because we look at ourselves and we say, oh, this is fun. You know, we can do this and ask for forgiveness. You know, that's our game. Life doesn't do that. Christ doesn't do that. Salvation has no part in that. Salvation is one man lives. One man lives in his body. That body is determined fully by the significance of who the head is. And when God looks to find any significance in the body, he doesn't look at the knee, he looks at the head. When he tries to find his approval in the body, he looks at the head. And that's why, as I've said in these lessons, it's so significant to realize that all of this power, all of that, all that God did, even the giving of an inheritance, and all of this stuff he did in his son first. And he concluded it there first and forever. That it is secured in Christ whether you or I ever come to it or not. And when we do, by the grace of God, come to this great salvation, it is great already. It is untainted already. It is unshaken already, and I can't do one thing to mess it up because it's him. It's his. And my soul has not received a commandment and an instruction. My soul has received him as its life and its righteousness and everything else. That's why, the, that's why his life is called the law of life. It is a law that works in us just like sin and death did. But it's a law that provides to the soul everything God has ever desired for that soul. That's good news. That's truth. And that's why we can live in the power of this new life, this resurrection life. 
And so in the light of all of that stuff, I just jumped around a lot, but in light of all of that, you know, and while it may take some by surprise and upset commonly held theological ideas, my purpose in every lesson I do and everything I do is to describe the beauty and the miraculous nature of being his body, of being risen with Christ, as Paul would say, of being those under his headship, of being found in him not having one thing of ours, of living in a body that is not determined by Jew, Gentile, male, female, but Christ all in all. There's great, great power to that. And it's a power that anchors us and keeps us in place. And so with all that said and seeing this power exerted and seeing these statements of like, when we were dead in sin, he, he, he has quickened us. You know what he calls that? By grace you're saved. That's him saying also, was it Romans? By this is a work of grace, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. So in light of that, let's go to Ezekiel. Chapter 37. Where most people want to talk about the wars of Gog and Magog and determine where that's going to happen try to figure out the futuristic possibilities. I want to show you he's talking about salvation. Again, you put this before the Lord. But it's true. Verse 1, chapter 37 of Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. He said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? What a question. What a question. For God to ask you, can these bones live? See, what I'm saying to you is when we read Ephesians chapter 2 and other places like in Rome, Romans where he says, when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, hath he quickened us. Here's the picture. Full of dead men's bones. Bones everywhere. Dead hopeless, dried. Can you imagine looking at that situation, that kind of thing, coming up on that type of a, a scene and have God ask you, can they live? The smart answer is the answer he gave because no man can even conceive that. 
No man can even conceive the thought of it, let alone the possibility that something that's not only dead but dried up has hope for life at all. Well, that was the state of all men in Adam. That was the state of Jew and Gentile. That's why the law condemns both as sinners. When God came to me, he came to a dead man. Dead in sin, bound to it, slave of it. No hope. And not one ounce of strength to get myself out of it. No ability. None. Why? Because it wasn't just things I did that got me out so I can change or got me there so I can just change what I do to get me out. That's not the point. Amen. It was I was born of a seed. I was inwardly under the rule of something that I could not rid myself of. I was married to a man that had dominion over me. And until that man dies, I can't be loosed from that dominion. Same picture here. He takes him to this valley full of bones and says, can they live again? And he says, oh Lord God, only you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinew upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin, put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this sounds like a lot of places. Right, John chapter 11 is one of them, verse 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John 5, 24, 25, we read this last time. I say unto you, he that hears my word, what did he say? Prophesy and say, thus saith the word of the Lord to these bones. He that heareth my bones. Jesus walking in the midst of the Jews to whom he was first sent is him walking in the midst of a valley of dry bones and saying, hear the word of the Lord. Come to me and live. Isn't that what he says to them when they're just trying their best, dead in sin now, thinking because they have the law of Moses, they're good. And they're a bunch of dead, dry bones. And he's in the midst of it. And he says to them, you do search the scripture. But a bone searching the scripture doesn't help much. But they are they that testify of me. You won't come to me that you might have life. There's the thing. That's what it was all about. I come so they could have life. Why? Because he came to a valley full of dead men's bones. Amen. He that heareth my word, he says, and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and he shall not come into condemnation because he has passed from death unto life. Verily I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live that's 
the same picture. That's the same thing. So verse 7 of chapter 37, Ezekiel, says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, and bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Well, this, this version, this is English Standard Version. Prophesy to the breath, and that's important. Not just when. Okay. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now here's, here's something you see in this. This is real interesting. When, because a lot of people go back to Genesis when God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. And they'll take this to go, go there, but it really doesn't fit because it's not the same word that's even used there. When God breathes into Adam's nostril and he gives him the breath of life, uh, he became, became a living soul, that word is not the same. This is a different word that's used. The word that is used there is neshma in the Hebrew. And that just means a, a, a wind or a natural breath, a natural life. The word that is used here in Ezekiel is ruach, which is always defined in Scripture as the spirit of God or the spirit of life. Or some commentaries would call it the divine breath of God. So what you're seeing here is beautiful. Even the Hebrew bears it out. You're not seeing a remaking of the old covenant and or the old creation where God just breathed regular breath into this man and he became a soul. God puts his divine life into this body and he becomes a living man, an exceeding great army that stands upon his feet. What are you seeing? You're seeing a new creation, a man filled with the very fullness of God's life, not just a human being existing and waiting on something. This is greater than the blowing of breath into Adam. When you see this again, the breath here is defined as the breath that brings spiritual, divine life. This is a prophecy beyond some natural thing. This is a prophecy that reaches right into what we are reading in Ephesians, what we read in Romans, that we might live by him. I've come that they may have life. God didn't come to re, you know, to reinstitute the Garden of Eden where you have a bunch of atoms. That's not the point. He came to bring his life into a body that he raises up by his own power, that he may live in that body and be in that body, all the fullness of that body, that that body has nothing of its own, but is filled with the fullness of himself. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a, pe a, a people has been gathered and raised up to stand on their feet with one life and one spirit. 
this is the picture that's being created here. This is what he's he's showing. This is beautiful. And you know where the real, I love the picture here because so many take this and run with it. But in John chapter 20, this is what happens in verse 19. The same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came Jesus and stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And we had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Now, this is Jesus. He's risen now. He's no longer dead. He's conquered death. He's just coming to them to show himself to them. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then said Jesus to them, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. You don't think that's a picture of something? You don't think he's showing a new Israel that he has actually restored and raised up by his life? He breathed on him and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. That's, that's Ezekiel 37 in a picture being fulfilled. That's what happens when we receive the life and breath of the Spirit of Christ. This is the risen Son breathing upon them, saying, Receive my Spirit. Again, a vital statement concerning what his resurrection has performed. The one raised by the eternal spirit can only can give his life and his power to those who believe, those who receive him. Ezekiel, okay, verse, verse 11 of Ezekiel 37. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are cut off from our parts. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I shall place you in your own land, that you shall know I, am, I the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Amen. Now, listen to these words. How, what does he define as, I'll bring you out of your graves? How is he going to do that? I'll put my spirit in you that you may live. Isn't that again what Jesus says? I am the resurrection. They will hear the voice and they shall come forth out of their graves. They shall live. Oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Right? And then you want to see all hope lost. Well, that's it. That's the condition of all men. But Israel as a nation under captivity, which this is primarily looking at, but all men summed up under the law as sinners and condemned. That's it. Our hope is lost, and we are cut off from all our parts. Man, that's a desperate situation. 
Who's going to answer that? I will put my spirit in you and I will open up your graves. I will cause you to come up out of your graves. I will do this. You know when that happened? Here's a picture of it. Matthew 27, verses 50 through 53. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Who, who did he say got up? Many bodies of the saints. Why? Because he was given an external picture of an eternal work. When he died on the cross, the whole system of the law, the whole promises and all the prophecies and everything of that covenant and that age was shown to be realized. Now, the veil in the temple is rent from top to bottom. God did that. Man didn't. And the graves that he had prophesied in Ezekiel to open up, he's showing this is when this happened. The graves opened and many of the saints arose and came out of their graves after his resurrection. You see the order there? Amen. They came out of their graves after his resurrection and went into the city and did what? Showed themselves to many. You know what that did? Freaked some folk out. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you. People didn't sleep too well, I promise you. Dead folk come back out of the graves. But what was Jesus doing? They came to show themselves, this is it. This is the promise. This is the graves being opened. He is risen. Amen. This is not about something yet to be. This is something wrought of God in the raising up of Jesus. Do you see how significant the raising up of Christ is? And why his resurrection is why Paul can say, if he's not raised, we are yet in our sins and our hope is none at all. We don't have any. And that's what uh, John 5, 28, marvel not at this for the hours coming in, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And those who are in the graves shall live. He goes on again. We've already addressed this. He that hears my word. This is verse 24 right above that. Because when we read the word graves, we immediately start thinking about tombs and tombstones. I remember people, you know, having debates when I was young and, you know, in the church and they would always debate about cremation or buried because, hey, we don't want to destroy the body, you know, because we're got to come out of those graves. And what about all those bones and stuff in, in, you know, in those places in New Orleans? They just push bones and make room for more to go in there. Now, those, you know, all that stuff seems kind of crazy because that's what we think about when we hear graves. He's not talking about natural graves. He's talking about a greater resurrection. A greater one. Isn't that what Hebrew says? That even the women said, I don't want my dead to be raised again. Why? Because they looked for a better resurrection. I mean, most people give their left arm to see somebody raised up again bodily. And a better resurrection has come. 
because it's a resurrection of a soul dead in sin in the grave. Amen. And it has been brought forth in the life of him who has been raised, victorious over such death and sin and corruption. And those who have come to him and heard the voice of him who is now the resurrection to the dead and of the dead, they have passed from death unto life, passed out of condemnation into no condemnation in Christ. They have been translated into the kingdom of the beloved of God. That's the resurrection. That's the life-giving power of the life-giving spirit, the man who is the Lord from heaven. That's what God has raised up. <laughs> that's, that's the resurrection. I mean, we can, in these verses, in these words, we still, Jesus, see him declaring the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. The dead bones of the whole house of Israel can come forth. How? Come to me that you may live. <clears throat> See, that's why when the law of the spirit of life comes into the soul, it frees the soul from the law of sin and death. That is what his life has wrought within us, and it has done so to the uttermost. Verse 13. <clears throat> Ezekiel 37 again. You shall know I am the Lord when I have opened your graves. O my people brought you out of your graves. I shall put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I shall place you in your own land. And you shall know that I the Lord have spoken it and performed it. Now, here's another prophecy that's basically saying the same thing. This is Isaiah chapter 26, verse 12. And we'll read through verse 20, but we'll stop as we go. Lord, thou with or wilt ordain peace for us. For thou also hast wrought all our works in us. Listen to these words. Thou wilt ordain peace for us. For thou hast wrought all our works in us. Now this is preliminary to get us where we're going here in Isaiah 26, but this is important. This shows the significance and power, again, of the question that is asked in Ezekiel 37. Can these bones live? Can this condition, can this state be reversed? Can this be answered? Can this be uh, 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 restored and redeemed? And the answer, again, is only you know, Lord, because if they can, you're the only one who can do this. So here we read in this, knowing that it's only his power that does it, not only will you ordain peace for us, here's how you do it. You have wrought all our works in us. That sounds a lot like of his fullness have we received. Now, bear with me on these words. You will ordain. This means to set and establish. Peace is that which is not a temporary remedy. The word actually means set, established state, permanent, unchanging peace. That is a completeness. Uh, complete, nothing missing. That's shalom. That's what it means. Completeness, nothing lacking, nothing missing. So the God establishes 
a peace that is permanent and unchanging. Because why? You have wrought all our works in us. How did he do that? Remember Ephesians 1, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You've wrought all our works in us. See, this is the key to completeness. This is the key to be able to understand you are complete in him. It's to understand these are not works we are to do. These are works wrought of God in us already. All the things that God said, this is what I want from you, guess what he did? He wrought them in us. He did it in us. How? Christ in you. It's done. You have performed for us all of our works in us. <laughs> New American Standard says it that way. You have performed for us all our works. Hallelujah. <laughs> How does he ordain and establish peace? Something unchanging. Nothing missing. I don't have to worry. Did I do this right? Because the ordaining of peace for us is that he has performed all of our works in us. Amen. Toward us. For us. That's the gift of being the body of that man. That head. It is not of ourselves. It is indeed a gift. This is his doing. This is the view of grace, the view of being a body filled with one fullness and only one. And if you look at the words, you'll see it again. That beautiful play, we do nothing, you do everything. Christ made unto us, what? All things. In him you have been made partakers of all spiritual blessings. Same thing. Verse 13, O Lord, this is, this, this, uh, I think it continues, uh, yeah, verse th 13 of Isaiah 26. O Lord, our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us. You remember? Adam had dominion over us. Other lords beside you have had dominion over us, but by thee only can we make mention of your name. When he said other lords in the Hebrew, it actually means other sovereigns, kings, and husbands. Both words are used there. We've had another head, had another king, and we've had another husband. But guess what? Verse 14, they are dead. And they shall not live. They are deceived. That's Romans 7, right? The husband's dead. You're free from the law of your husband. They're dead. They shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all of their memory to perish. Hallelujah. That's salvation. That enemy will never be seen again. That husband's dead forever. <laughs> now, that's, that's the beauty. And then verse 15, Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee, uh, meaning they've cried out to you when they're in trouble. They poured out a prayer when they 
when, when thy chastened upon was upon them, or chastening was upon them, like a woman with child, that draweth near to the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her pains, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child and we have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. And we have not wrought any deliverance in the earth. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. What is this talking about? Our hopes have proven. This is a commentary. I love the way he says it. It's very crude, but he says it this way. Our hopes have proven to be aborted. We have brought nothing, no child forth, just wind. We have been disappointed in our expectations. Isn't that what Jesus says? If they fall on this stone, if they fall on this stone, they shall not be disappointed. That's the word used. They will not be disappointed. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth. There has been no salvation brought forth. Why? Because we can't do that. It's not in our power to do salvation. Nothing was done as it was expected. Isn't that every soul that was under the law? <laughs> Romans 7. Every time I tried to do this, it didn't work. It didn't happen. Why? Because I'm still there. Yeah. The problem is there's no real deliverance. Why? Because I don't have the gift for it. I don't have the power for it. There has to be something else. And here's the here's the verse that defines what is necessary. Verse 19, Isaiah 26. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. That's a picture of the resurrection. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Here's your answer. So awake and sing, you that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter into thy chambers. Shut the door about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a moment until the indignation be passed. And again, this is the beautiful depiction of the resurrection. Same resurrection we're reading about in Ezekiel 37. This is the resurrection of Christ and the body that is brought forth and established with him in that resurrection. One of the commentaries, I think this is John Gill, that says, when he says, together with my dead body, they shall rise, he says, speaking of the church, the mystical body of Christ, and every member of it, though they have been dead in sin, shall arise. Every one of them make up that body, which is filled with the fullness of him that filleth all, and that by virtue of their union with him, That's beautiful. Amen. There's the answer. This this that we tried in the earth brought no results and did nothing but disappoint our hopes. We have nothing. What's going to give you something? You will live by me. Amen. When I'm raised, you will be raised with me. Thank you, sweet God. There's the answer. 
See, that's why it's so significant to read these words in Ephesians and realize that's why it's important to know we're his body. That's why it's important to know first he was raised, exalted, glorified, sat on the right hand of God in the heavens. Because then we come in with him. We are brought into him, made to be his habitation, his temple, his house that he raised up himself. There's the only answer. And that's the only answer God's ever given. That's the answer to a soul dead. That's the answer to all men dead, like bones on the ground. Whether you be Jew or Gentile, this is not talking about some natural restoration of a natural nation. This is talking about the resurrection because there's only one. The resurrection we now partake of as his body. That's what it means. You are risen with him. And I think I've gone long enough. We'll stop there. But we'll next time we'll continue here in Ezekiel 37 because in you know verse 15 through he begins to take these two sticks writes upon it and makes them one. Again, that's speaking of the same resurrection. We won't get off. If we get in that, I'll do another hour. So we won't do that. So we'll stop there, guys. Oh, what a blessing. Amen. Amen. Oh, what a blessing. Amen. Thank you, sweet God. Wow. All right, guys. Any uh, questions or anything? Yeah, Raven, you you uh, spoke about um, Christ dying to sin. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Can you expound on that, please? Dying to sin. Well, he went. He he came as a man. He took sin upon himself. He became sin. He became sin. Yeah. And he put it to death in his body. Um, but then. He was raised having conquered that death because death was ruler over all men. Death was the king, as it says in Romans 5. That's death reigned. Why? Because sin reigned. And that's the, that's the point. He died to sin. Sin was the thing that held. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, we talk about the power of sin or power of death or the sting of death. What did he say? How does he say it? Uh, is sin and the strength of sin is the law. So the law said, this is sin, you're a sinner, you're not him, and then because of that sin, you're dead. So yeah, what did yeah. Jesus do? He took upon himself the form of it, was made sin for us, so that he could die to sin, the thing that the law condemned, put sin away once and for all, and then what does death have dominion over? When a man is when a man is dead, guess what? Sin has no more dominion. Okay, so when he's raised up out of the dead, out from among the dead, he is shown by God Himself. There's a man who has overcome this. There's a man who's overcome this state of sin, corruption, 
and spiritual death. And then he makes that man to be the voice calling out to the dead. You see, because most people would say, well, he conquered death. That means all of us are not dead in sin. We're all okay. No. He conquered death. He came forth as king. He's the resurrection and the life. But you have to hear the voice of the resurrection. You have to believe. You have to come to him and receive his life. This is not universalist thinking where, you know, he died to sin, so everybody's good. No, we have to come to the new man who is dead to sin. We have to come to the one over whom sin and death and corruption and all of it has no claim. And when we are found in that one, it's the same can be said of us. Not because we're anything, because we're found in the only one that has overcome death and sin. Amen. See, that's what it means that he died to sin. And he did it, he died unto sin once. That was it. That's all that was necessary. You don't need sin offerings from now to doomsday. He's it. And because he not only died to it, but was raised up victorious over it, now he can call. That's why, that's why when he's the king of a kingdom that he says is not of this world, it's a kingdom that's greater than all the kingdoms of the world. What does that mean? That he, as the king that is greater than all other kingdoms, can call out to every subject of every natural kingdom and says, Come unto me. Come to my kingdom. Live under my rule. Now that's a greater kingdom. That's a that's a small explanation of it, but that's somewhat of it. Did that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was good to Sean. Uh but yeah, I mean there's so much to it, but that's a that's part of it. I mean that's that's what it means that he died to sin. God had to have a man that could overcome it. Yes. A perfect man. And while men are always trying to not sin, <laughs> there's a man who has put away sin. That's different. That's a lot more significant than I'm trying to stop sinning. Or, you know, my willpower is getting better there's a man who put away sin and he's not calling men to try to stop doing something he's calling men to come to live under the dominion of a man who has put it away like Solomon the king of a, a place of peace where there's no enemy at all this is the sovereign rule under which we live it's a place of peace my peace I ordain, right? You know, God will ordain peace. How? You've wrought all our works in us. <laughs> what kind of peace is that? Man, you've done it all already in us. Righteousness fulfilled in you. Yeah. Amen. So that's, that's a, that body benefits greatly. And, you know, again, you can understand why Paul says you've got to see this. 
<laughs> You've got to see this man. God's got to, God's got to, God's got to open, God's got to open your eyes to this because this yeah. is too, too good for you to believe. Yeah. Too good for you to conceive. No doctrine can preach this into you. You've just got to see him for yourself. And, you know, that's that's always the end of the, any presentation of the gospel has to be that. Uh, this is great, and it really is. This is true, and it really is. This is complete, and absolutely it is. But you've got to see him for yourself to really see the dimensions of it. Uh, because they're beyond anything words can say. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. See you on the 26th.